Good morning. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some topics and sometimes it's not right topics. And I think today we have a topic that um, might fit a little bit of both categories. My name is Heather Stark. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. I have with me Dr. David uh, Cotterndall. I hope I'm saying that right, and Johanna Becho. Um, they have worked together They've uh, on a, a study that caught my eye, and the name of the study is is perceived action for uh, need, is perceived need for action among women in violent relationships nonlinear, and if so, why? Now, after we introduce our guests, we're going to talk about what that question really means in language uh, if you're not uh, uh, doing the study uh, so that we can all kind of figure it out. I think we we pretty much can, but uh, just to be sure. So thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Katrindahl, for being with us. Thank you very much, Johanna. You both have very interesting backgrounds. And, uh, of course, Dr. Uh, Katrindahl, you are a medical doctor. And Johanna, you are a master's and an MA, but please tell us a little bit more about your backgrounds. I see that you are a research associate, Johanna, Johanna, and uh, that you work in the Family, Couples, and Individual Psychotherapy fa- Program in the Department of Psychology. And what what does that mean? What do you what do you do? Um, well, first of all, thank you for having us on the show. Um, my work has been centered on um, a role as an engaged listener on Dr. Cotterndahl's studies across. Um, what does that maybe mean, four. an engaged listener? Okay, so I'm part of a research team that has been comprised um, by several investigators um, who mm-hmm. have received funding to examine intimate partner violence. Um, my uh, background is in psychology. Um, I have a BA in psychology and a master's in uh, psychotherapy through the Our Lady of the Lake University here in San Antonio. I've been working alongside Dr. Katernal for about 13 years. Um, wow. To look at okay. Partner Terrific. So you clearly make a good team. Dr. Katernal, how, how, how do you come to this area? Well, thank you, Heather, for uh, having us on. Uh, I've been interested in mental health for uh, many years. In fact, most of my research and clinical work is is in mental health, even though I'm a primary care physician. So I got interested in it probably 30 years ago uh, when I realized that by dealing with the mental health issues of our patients that we can turn their lives around in relatively short order uh, as opposed to slugging away at medical problems that that were just not getting better because of their mental health issues. Yeah, I, and that's so true. I, having grown up in a, in a household where mental illness uh, of one of my parents was a huge factor, we finally got my mother some mental health care um, when she was, oh gosh, in her early 70s. And although she still, you know, her she was still clearly affected by this. I mean, she wasn't cured by any means. Um, but boy, my sister and I would both look at each other, go going, how different would our lives have been if this woman had gotten this kind of treatment 40 years ago? You know, exactly, uh, it, exactly. It, it would have made all the difference in the world. Um, and and even at the end of her life, you know, when I, I finally, I always said, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, I mean this from the standpoint of my experience as a child, I always knew she was crazy, but I didn't know she was mentally ill. 
And when we got that actual diagnosis, it just, so many things just fell into place. Um, so I, I admire you for acknowledging and recognizing this because I've lived this personally. Um, it, it, there are underlying things. It doesn't matter how much you try to work on some things. If you're not working on those underpinnings, it's not going to make a difference, is it? No, not at all. So most of my early work was really in panic disorder and major depressive disorder. But as part of that research, we would we were investigating adult victims of child abuse, and we were uh, looking for partner violence. And we we found obviously we found high rates of both in these patients. And so then about. A dozen years ago, there was a group of investigators here talking about where we as a team could go, and that's how we how we got into uh, the focus on partner violence. Yeah, and it's a huge issue. I mean, just like the mental health issues, it, this is also a, a huge underlying cause of so many things. Thank you for that, and thank you for your work um, as well. One of the things when we're talking about um, intimate partner violence or domestic violence, um, the first question that people always ask is, well, why doesn't she just leave? Why doesn't she just leave? I mean, like, it's just so simple. And, in fact, my experience with people who've never experienced domestic violence is it is simple. Oh, how many times have I heard somebody say, oh, if, if he did that to me or she did that, I'd be, I'd be out the door. But it's not that simple. And in your research, you kind of talk about this nonlinear. What, what do you mean by nonlinear? Um, when I read that, I kind of thought, okay, this person does something I perceive as abusive. Boom, I straight line out the door. It's not exactly like that, is it? Not at all. Not at all. So uh, for, for the, uh, the geeks and nerds in your, in your listening audience, um, the term nonlinear really comes from the complexity science literature. We as a, as a species are brought up to constantly look for cause and effect relationships. And we think that if you, uh, if you intervene in a situation in a small degree, you'll get a small response. If you put a big intervention into the situation, you'll get a major response. Well, in nonlinear situations, those kind of relationships don't, don't always pan out, all right? So a small intervention in a nonlinear system could have a dramatic response, while a major intervention that is poorly timed or executed could have no or even a negative response in a nonlinear system. Just, they simply don't respond predictably according to our cause and effect linear mindset that, that's so ingrained in us. Okay, let's put that in the context then of domestic violence. How does this nonlinear um, um, uh, approach or trajectory uh, apply when we're talking about domestic violence situations? So what we know right now is if you look, if you take the domestic violence literature as this huge mass of, of research papers out there, we know a great deal about factors that seem to predict whether you get into a violent relationship or not. We know a great deal about the impact, the consequences of being in that relationship, whether it's physical uh, injuries or mental health problems. What we don't know much about is the day-to-day -day 
interaction within that household and and what predicts whether he is violent today or not. We know yeah. very little about that situation, all right? That's kind of how we got into this, is to look at at that situation and what determines whether whether he blows up and beats her up today or whether he's nice and, and kind to her today. Uh, and there's little factors in a nonlinear situation. Little things may have dramatic effects, all right? So if he perceives that that man that they met, that stranger on the street, gave her a funny look, he may decide, oh, they must be having a relationship, and he gets intensely jealous and swats her that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's that's a, a total... It's right. It's a, a totally unpredictable thing from our mindsets. Something we wouldn't have expected. Right. So, how does this? What? What did? What kind of uh, pool did you use for your research? Did you um, t- describe your your research for us, please? Your, did you interview direct? Was it quantitative, qualitative? Did you dire- directly interview people? Did you pull information from other records and other studies? How did you um, begin your research on this topic? So we have now done a series of studies, and we generally approach it the same way. We recruit women from primary care offices. While they're waiting for their physician, we will go in and screen them for uh, experiencing any kind of abuse in their relationship within the prior 30 days. And we will then, those that are women that uh, screen positive, we ask them to participate in the study. We screen them out for women who are in extremely abusive relationships because what we're going to be doing is we're going to be asking them to report on what happened the prior day in their situation and give us that report every day for anywhere from two to three months. So that's a highly charged situation. And if the abuser learns about this, it may set him off and she may experience more abuse just by being in our study. So we try to screen out the women that are in, in situations where it, we feel it would be dangerous for them to participate in the study. So once we've enrolled the women, uh, they are given a special code that they, that they uh, when they phone in every day, they punch this code in so they can ask, access the survey. They complete the survey, and at the end of two to three months, depending on the study, we sit down with the women and we do qualitative interviews with them. Okay, which means you're one-on-one interview. You're not giving them a survey to fill out. You're asking them questions directly. Exactly. Right. Okay. So what did you find in your survey? Or in your, well, your study, what, what did you find? Again, we're, we're we're talking about a series of studies here. So, okay. in the yeah. in the initial studies, we were trying to look at does the does the abuse does the violence follow a predictable pattern or not? So uh, there's there's a variety of theories out there, but there's only three theories that predict on a day-to-day basis what's going to happen that in that relationship. So the original one was the um, cycle of violence. So the idea is he's violent, he has remorse for after that 
violence occurs. He tries to be kind to her and may give her, her flowers, but eventually over time, the stress builds and builds and builds until finally he explodes again. And we go round and round in this cycle. So and that we would the, exp- problem, and, the problem with that cycle is that that doesn't describe every abuser. Exactly, exactly. Um, And then the the second model is the family systems theory uh, approach, which which focuses really on the day-to-day interchanges among the the couple. And this can produce uh, a more nonlinear pattern, but not really a random pattern, one we would label as, as chaos, chaotic pattern. And then finally, the, uh, the theory is the, uh, the power and control wheel, where violence is only one of a menu of behaviors that the abuser uses to control his partner. And so that, that would tend to produce a more random pattern to the violence. And so our first study looked at that. Is, which of these theories best describes what we see in, in the dynamics of this violence? And what we actually found, is, as you kind of pointed out a minute ago, was, well, wait a minute, there's no one pattern here. All right. Although the majority had a random pattern, about a third of the women, um, their relationships, their violence followed a chaotic pattern. And about 10% had a very regular, ordered cycle of violence. So they were very predictable. I have heard of women actually, you know, who are in that cycle of violence, that predict, more predictable cycle of violence, actually provoking um, uh, an incident in order to, for example, you know, my son has his birthday party on Saturday, and I know this is coming, this is coming, I don't want to come, to come on Saturday, and so I will literally provoke it on Thursday so that Saturday is okay for my child. Um, I, That's I, the epitome I that. of predictability, isn't it? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, but only ten percent followed that cycle of violence, which we used to think was the explanation for everything. Yes, um, and you'll still you'll still see that on websites, violence websites. Oh gosh! But it yeah, really describes yeah. a small portion of what we actually see. Yeah, exactly. So, what about the family systems theory? What did you find with that? So those actually, the, the women that, whose relationships followed that pattern actually seemed to be the healthiest. In other words, they were experienced the least severe violence. They had the best attitudes and appraisals about their violence. They were less likely to think that they were responsible, for example, um, or have very negative attitudes about, about their future. Oh, really? Huh. Okay. All right. Um, and what about the power and control group? So the power and the control group is, is, is a problem in the sense that because it's so random, the women don't know what, how to handle the situation. So they, and they, they logically feel this is totally unpredictable. I have no control in this situation, and I don't know what I'm going to do about it. And so their levels of hope tend to be much lower. Did you find anything, I mean, your, your theory or your, your research was based on these three theories, 
Yes, for the, for that particular find, study, yes. For the, okay, all right. And um, forgive me for not being more uh, aware and able to uh, discuss your, your study with you. Um, I had a hard time uh, downloading it, quite frankly. It took me quite a while to find a place where I could get uh, pieces of it. because, And that's because it's so new. It just came out. And mm-hmm. um, it was published in the Journal of Interpersonal Violence. Um, so with... With these three theories, and I'm thinking, and, and this is one study you did where you looked at all three of these theories. Right. Right. Okay. Correct. Your conclusions in that particular study is were what? So, number one, there's no one theory that seems to describe everything. So we need to we need to. Uh, rid ourselves of this idea that we're going to come up with one theory to explain every every couple and every situation. Uh, and so number two, maybe we don't know what's going on here as, as well as we think we know. Uh, maybe there's some other theory that actually can encompass all of these. Maybe there's a higher order umbrella theory that's actually going to better describe what's going on. Uh, number three is because the patterns uh, in the vast majority of women, because the patterns are nonlinear, they're not predictable, we need to expect that we're not going to be able to predictably intervene in these situations. And so we need to adjust how we're intervening, and we also need to adjust our expectations. Uh, yeah, the expectations. Um that that's a good one <laughs> because we do place a lot of expectations on women who are in that situation um and let me just throw out a little caveat here i unapologetically say women because statistically the vast majority of um interpersonal violence is against women um regardless of some of the things that that people have have read um so with this, uh, I want to go to Johanna because we're kind of igno- I'm kind of ignoring you, and I don't mean to. In this particular part, this one study that we are discussing um, uh, right now, what was your role in that as the active listener? What What was it that you did, Johanna? Okay, so my role consistently across each project has been fourfold, and uh, first and foremost, it's really just to promote participation. So there were a series of uh, weekly phone calls that each woman participated in. In other words, she was instructed to call in at least once a week um, through the duration of her participation to check in with me, and my role was to track safety, number one, um, but also to encourage participation. And then um, when I talk about the role of engaged listener, it was really just uh, a place for her to deposit, you know, the the uh, experiences, the lived experiences of um, her the intimate partner violence, as well as um, just being able to provide a space for her to process these experiences and talk out her plight. A lot of these women have not had an opportunity to um, process their experiences, and so. The study created an opportunity for them to even um, discern what some of the barriers are, and those barriers are going to vary from from case to case or from woman to woman. So as Dr. Cotterndall mentioned, um, and with regards to the three different theories, 
of violence and the three different patterns, sometimes you can see a relationship start out in one pattern and then evolve into a different pattern. And so um, my role was also just to support um, the victim emotionally. As you can imagine, it's a very uh, sensitive and delicate conversation. It's dialogue that not all people are prepared to have. Um, there's a lot of empathy that should be directed to this population, even though we have a tendency to judge the woman that's in this situation. Um, I like to say that we should be asking different questions. And so you're right when you say the general question that comes to mind is, why doesn't she leave? Um, I think all of our time on this construct has uh, helped us to acknowledge that we should be asking different questions, like what are the barriers that keep her in the relationship? What is keeping her from leaving this relationship? And and that's the kind of uh, dialogue that is generated um, with each subject. And that's been my role is also to connect them to local resources and make referrals and um, just help them plan out their, um, you know, if they're interested in leaving or if they're if they believe that they will be successful in leaving, then my role is to just assist in the process. So when I approach women, I, I'm fully aware that I'm contending with uh, very deeply ingrained uh, attitudes. Um, we bring our childhoods to the table. Um, we bring prior experiences of previous relationships, notions about what a marriage should be and should not be. Um, religiosity definitely comes into play. So these are all things that I bear in mind when I'm working with a victim. And um, the idea that you can just that we can be prescriptive on our end, in other words, tell a woman what she should do, is it's completely um, absurd because she's already got someone in her life that's telling her what to do. And so if you really want to help a woman, yeah, if you really want to help a woman, um, you might want to start out just by listening. Be prepared to listen um, because the listening is going to generate an understanding that is specific to her life. And so if you believe that if you subscribe to a one-size-fits-all mentality, then you're going to become quickly um, disenchanted with this idea. In other words, you'll lose patience because these relationships are, uh, like Dr. Katterndahl says, very complex. There's so much to consider. And um, unless you've been doing the research for an extended period of time like we have, then you're going to be prone to um, the why doesn't she just leave uh, mindset. Yeah, um, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's so easy, and I remember, you know, as a young woman saying, "Oh, if anybody ever laid a hand on me, I'd be out of there." Da, 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 da. But then, you know, you grow up and you buy houses together and you have children together and you have, you know, and when things happen gradually, um, I've talked with women who, you know, the first time he slapped her, um, it was, "Oh my God, what did he do?" But I've got the kids, and of course I want to get, just get in the car and go. But I've got the kids, and da 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 da, and and we've got all of this network. To, I, I'm supposed to just drop everything, you know? What if he really did just snap? What if he really did just need help? What if this really was a one-time thing? Am I going to ditch everything because of that? I mean, it's such a complex, such a complex issue um, that it always kind of amazes me how easy we are to judge how 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 easily you should leave. <laughs> And the other thing is her her actions have potentially very serious consequences, obviously for the children, but even for her. You know, women get killed when they leave their husbands. 
Exactly. And we need to remember that. And I think, unfortunately, you know, Johanna and I have, have run across people in this field who basically say the only correct answer for her is to get out of that house or actually kick him out of that house. Yeah, well, that, that in my opinion, that's an, a very arrogant approach because Absolutely. you don't know what that woman's situation is. Yes, and as Dr. Catterndall mentioned, the most dangerous time for a woman is when she is indeed trying to leave. And so sometimes we like to think that the violence would end if she should exit the relationship once and for all. But the reality is if there are children involved and there are other factors, then the face of violence simply changes. Um, there, are, it's a, there are culmin- it's, it's a culmination, I think, of um, issues that people, or at least uh, people who don't spend enough time with the construct, have not construct have not considered, um, and that includes, um, you know, the different types of, as Dr. Catterndall mentioned, the different types of um, uh, the menu of behaviors that a man will use against a woman varies, and uh, these men um, are very calculated. And some men um, can can just be very predictable. Um, and so when you're working with a woman, it's also very important to remember that leaving, is it's not an event, it's a process. And so what I love about the research that we've been doing is that it's allowed us to consider the stages of change that a woman goes through. And whenever I'm working directly with a woman, I'm asking myself what stage of change is this person in at this given time because that's going to give you insight about what what the next steps are. Um, likewise, next steps are not up to us. Next steps are based on perceived barriers, perceived threats, as Dr. Cotterndall mentions. Um, she, The woman is the expert of her life, just like you are the expert of your life. If I go home with you today, I'll learn very much about what it is you contend with after your job is over, your 8 to 5 is done. Um, There are numerous other things to consider. Are there children in the picture? Is this person documented? Um, What status does does her husband hold in the community? Is he... Um, we've got we've dealt with women that are you know whose husbands are police officers. Um, we've got women who are married to men who say if you call the police or you involve the authorities, then let me remind you you're undocumented. You'll be deported in a, in a New York minute. So there's so much to consider, and and if if you want to really help a woman in this situation. The one thing you need to do is you need to be mindful about where she's at in st- in stages of change, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about that, but I don't want to um, exclude Dr. Cotterndall. <laughs> well, actually, um, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit more about that after we've finished uh, learning um, about more about what you've discovered in in your research. So I would like to to uh, come back to that if that's okay. Sure. Um, Dr. Katerno, well, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time with your name today. <laughs> I just don't know. <laughs> because you're human. Everyone has a tough time with my name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, we but, call him Dr. Um, K. One of the things uh, that you talked about is that there was actually a series of, of research studies that you did here. The first one we, we pretty much discovered um, covered these three previous series of Patterns or supposed patterns for domestic violence. What were the other aspects of your your studies? 
So the uh, the next study after that was focusing on the woman's decision making, and we did a fairly large study there. And I think that's probably the article you saw. We've done a couple of studies, smaller studies since then. So we've done one a small study to uh, enroll actually violent couples. So we the husband was part of the study. And we did that mostly to see can we keep the woman safe if her husband knows that she's in a study about violence. Uh, and then we're, we just recently completed a small interventional study in primary care offices. And we're right now doing one on uh, in urgent care centers looking for women who are in violent relationships and basically asking them, what type of intervention would you even be willing to consider? I think it's important to remember, too, for for those of us who are not, you know, working one-on-one with people, um, it's important to remember that each person is so unique, their situation is so unique, and when we from outside say, well, you should do this or you should be doing that, as as Johanna um, uh, expressed, we we don't take into account how that person's life is different from ours. You know, if I've never experienced this, then it I, it, it's kind of like raising children. No one knows how to raise children better than those people who have no children, right? Exactly. Um, you know, it's so easy to look at something uh, when you don't have uh, experience with it, when you don't have, uh, when you don't understand fully what's going on. It's very easy uh, for people to look at a woman who's being abused and say, "Well, she needs to do this, this, and this," and if she doesn't, clearly there's something wrong with her. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the, the woman's decision-making study because that is the one that I was able to, uh, to get hold of. And what did you find with this decision-making? Because I have never talked to a woman who's lived in an abusive situation who hasn't thought, I need out, I need out, I want out, I want out. It's not, from what I can see, a matter of, oh, gosh, I really think I do need to stay here or I do need to 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 endure this or I do need, it's more of a question of how do I get out is that what you found in your in your research so before we did this study there there were not that many studies looking at this aspect of how women make decisions there were a handful of qualitative studies where women were interviewed generally these were women who were already in women's shelters so it's a very extreme group of women and it's not the women who are suffering at home that were be that were part of the study uh so we wanted to actually well, go I might in, interject, also women who sure. are ex- ex- under probably the most extreme stress you know um more so even than when they're in their own homes uh, i i i would think because you have just uprooted everything and you don't know what's going to happen next so would the question would, would women who are in shelters be answering questions the same way if they were asked the questions when they were still in their own homes absolutely absolutely so uh what we found was uh, first of all three-fourths of the women that we enrolled in the study had already taken a previous action of some sort so to think that they're just sitting at home and never doing anything, whether it's calling police or trying to get counseling, whatever, many of these women have already done something, all right, Mm -hmm. on their own. We divided the actions into three categories. One is, did you try to get 
counseling or try to get some sort of help in terms of coping with the situation. Number two, did you take some legal action? Did you call police, go to an attorney, whatever? And number three, did you try to leave in some way, whether it's to a women's shelter or to a friend's house? We separated them out in this way. We found some really interesting differences in those three groups. So the women who, uh, and then we followed them, obviously, for for, uh, eight weeks and uh, followed what they were doing. And many of the women, about 30 of the women in the study actually took some action of their own during the study, even though that was not the intent of the study. We were just asking them, do you think you need to do something every day? That was the only, inter- the, the only question we asked women on a daily basis about their decision-making. Do you think you need to do something, whether it's seeking help, legal action, or leaving? And then once a week, Johanna would talk to the women and ask them, in the past week, have you actually taken some action? And if so, when did you take it, and what was the circumstances, and what did you do? And we found that 30 women actually took some action during our study. So the women who actually got into counseling during our study, one of the important predictors was, had they ever sought counseling before, and how positive was that experience? (coughs) If they had had previously positive experience, they were much more likely to do that again. Also, also, their perceived level of need the day before they t- uh, the day they took action was also very important to whether whether they took took some action, and their perceived control that they had in their in their situation. Those are really important factors as to whether she would go into counseling. That was a very different pattern from taking any kind of legal action. And the women who took legal action had previously, generally previously, taken some sort of legal action before. But whether it was positive or negative was not an important factor here. If they had ever taken a legal action in the past, they were more likely to do it again. And their perceived level of need was unimportant. It did not predict whether they took action or not. So this suggests that there's something that happens that day, something that triggers them to feel, I got to do something. I have to call the police right now in their mind. That's consistent with another study that I read actually quite some time ago, Um, and I I don't have it in front of me, so I can't tell you who the authors were, but uh, in that study, um, it basically tied in the uh, action taken or not taken with the immediacy of the need. That does sound exactly like this. And then the third group, of course, was the women who actually left during the study. (coughs) And what we found was if they previously left, it was important, but the most important factor was how bad was that experience. If they previously left an abusive relationship and it, it went poorly for whatever reason, they were much less likely to leave the relationship again. Oh, well, but their but their level of need, their perce- perception that the violence was increasing, those are also really important factors as to whether they would leave. Now, did you look at uh, only physical violence, or did you look at other aspects of abuse? No, we included women if they were in emotionally abusive relationships as well. 
Okay. So All right. On, and on, on go day, ahead, Johanna. Just to give you, a, sorry, just to give you a little bit of um, background. On day one, when we recruit the women, um, I guess it's important to to state that we are not um, advertising the study as a domestic violence study or an intimate partner violence study. What we do is we have a cover story um, that we give the women if they choose to participate in. We let them know that they are participating in a study on family stress because that's something that everyone can relate to. All of us um, can relate to this notion of family stress. And on day one, we have uh, several measures that we, we collect data on several measures, um, anything from their acculturation to their uh, somatic symptoms, their social networks, their adverse childhood experiences, their marital satisfaction, uh, their health care utilization, their readiness for change, um, how they're coping in their relationships. And then when Dr. Katterndahl talks about this IVR system, which is an interactive verbal response system, that's that's where we collect data on a daily basis in real time. And originally, he was asking questions about what is it like in your in your uh, home from day to day. What type of hassles are you encountering? Are there what are the what is the degree of arguments? The level of arguments? The level of control that you have over these arguments? What does the alcohol intake look like? Is there verbal abuse? Is there physical abuse? And so, um, again, we are tracking women in real time across um, eight weeks and collecting data on their, it's like you, you can liken it to being a fly um, on the wall in their home. And so that was really something that was unique to this study that not a lot of other teams have done. Um, when Dr. Cottendall talks about the weekly phone calls and decision-making, I think it was the level of awareness that is constantly rising for a woman that is participating on a, on a study like this. A lot of our women don't realize that they're in an abusive relationship because um, maybe they grew up watching this uh, between mom and dad. There's a cultural element, certainly, at least here in San Antonio, that we've observed um, and that the majority of our women are Hispanic, it's a predominantly Hispanic community, um, and sometimes women were not classifying their own relationships as dangerous or as abusive. And so um, with all that said, I'm not sure if it's the right time, but I would, I would definitely like to shine the light on the stages of change because um, when you, it's very interesting what a woman will do when you involve you get her to participate on a study like this one over the course of um, two months, and you provide emotional support, and you provide her the liberty of calling in to report either an adverse experience or to process, and you provide the safety net that comes with um, being on a study like ours so that she isn't afraid that her um, CPS will be called or that her children will be taken away from her or that she is going to be discovered, that you know her participation will be discovered by her husband because we've taken great measures to, to preserve her safety while she's on the study, and I think that was one of the, the, strong, uh, the strengths of the study. Uh, I, and I would like to talk about those stages of change because you mentioned a few things um, that are, I would think would be required in order to make the change, the first of which would be recognizing that you can no longer be uh, in this situation, recognizing that it is abusive. Um, and I see that um, with a, a lot of women who are in um, uh, 
coercive control situations or uh, situations where there isn't physical violence. I think we've done a really good job in our country talking about domestic violence and how it's unacceptable if there's physical abuse. I think it, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody um, who would not recognize physical abuse as as domestic violence. However, I think that there's a real gap in the knowledge, uh, especially or oftentimes with the women who are actually living with it, of the other types of abuse and, and that, in fact, they are just as bad, if not worse, in many cases. So I think that recognizing the abuse is a, is a huge issue. And, um, and what I'm hearing you say is that by participating in the study, that kind of triggered an awareness for some of your participants that they were, in fact, an abusive relationships? Yes. Some women um, were not fully aware that they are in an abusive relationship, whereas other women um, are aware that they're in an abusive relationship, but they, these are the, the subset of women that are just kind of, um, I guess, just waiting for circumstances to change. They might have children. They might be raising small children. Um, there are numerous variables to consider, but with regards to the stages of change when we began doing this work, um, we discovered that the stages of leaving an abusive relationship, they correspond with five stages in what we call or what has been known as the trans-theoretical model of change. Um, and maybe some of your listeners would be um, wise to, to research this because the trans-theoretical theoretical model of change states that behavior uh, change, it moves, it moves through five different stages. The first one being pre-contemplation, then there's contemplation, then there's preparation, and then there's action and maintenance. And in pre-contemplation, an individual is not likely aware of a pro problematic behavior, and that can be the woman that doesn't uh, see herself as being in this abusive relationship. And Alongside with that, she's disinterested in seeking change, so she's not ready to make change. A woman that's in the contemplation stage may re recognize that there are certain behaviors that are indeed problematic, so she's got an awareness that she's in an abusive relationship and she does not yet know what to do, so she may be evaluating pros and cons associated with making a change. So this is where she may begin to think out her options or um, quietly um, and in, internally just begin to explore, you know, what some of the, of the alternatives might be. Um, in the preparation stage, an individual is actively preparing to make stages. And when I'm working with someone in the stage, this is the person that is um, exhibiting change talk. So she's setting dates, she's saving money, she's gathering birth certificates, she's um, planning out or mapping out um, her exit strategy. A woman that is in the action stage is um, carrying out an overt effort to implement or, or she's carrying out the change. She's, she's identified that date that she's going to leave if he's out of town or, or she, she can tell you, she's able to ex uh, tell me exactly what she's going to do um, in terms of leaving the abusive relationship. And then once a woman is gone, that stage is called the maintenance stage, and, and usually we like to say that there's a, a woman has successfully left if she can sustain, um, you know, the change for at least six months. Bear in mind that women will return back to the relationship um, for numerous reasons, and that's where I think they're subject to high judgment. But oh, sometimes, gosh, yes. yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Sometimes returning yeah. to the relationship is a normal part of the process. What I like to highlight when I'm working with a woman who's returned to the, the relationship is that um, she's come back to the relationship sometimes because there's per- a perceived sense of hope, hope that he will change, hope that things will be different this time. And the beauty about a woman in this stage who's returned, in spite of the fact that she may be subject to high judgment, um, is that she's already recognizing that this man may not change, may not ever change. And she's begun to, she can draw on the confidence of the of leaving, you know, the confidence and the, the courage that was required in leaving the first time. So if you're working with someone who's returned to a relationship, your first inclination might be frustration. It might be, why did you return? But be patient because women women ultimately and internally, they're working things out, and it's not on our time frame, and it's not for us to, to judge. If anything, that's well, the time that she needs extra, extra help. And there extra are so support. many factors contributing. I mean, economic factors, um, family pressures, you know, sometimes religion. There, there are so many factors that Absolutely. are pressuring a woman to not leave. Um, that, you know, it, I, I think we'd have to be very um, callous to not recognize those when we're looking at a woman and making the judgment, as you said, about returning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thirty years ago, when a woman returned, it was, well, she must like this. You know, that was the assumption. I think that um, one of the the things that I always say to people who are criticizing of the fact that a woman might return one or two or three or four times before finally leaving is, um, I, I saw a study once that it takes uh, seven attempts to quit smoking successfully. And I always mm-hmm. think, gosh, if it takes seven attempts to give up a cigarette, what? how many attempts does it take to give up your hopes, your dreams, your security, your your marriage? Uh, you know, how, how many attempts must it take to give all that up if it takes seven tries to give up a cigarette, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So... Dr. Katernal, how um, how is your series of studies here, how is that changing how we perceive women's actions in domestic violence situations? Uh, I think, well, in terms of our study group, I think it's changed, changed the way we think dramatically. Uh, I'm not sure the bigger community in domestic violence has changed at this point. Um, This whole idea of complex systems and nonlinearity, this is still pretty cutting edge in most medical research. So uh, I think it's going to take a while for these kind of things to sink in, uh, but hopefully it'll happen eventually. Yeah. And one of the things that we didn't talk about in this whole um, conversation planning to leave and the stages of leaving and everything is that, as you pointed out, doctor, it is risky to leave, physically risky. Women get killed when they try to leave. Um, But it also is risky from a whole other standpoint, and that is legally. Family courts are doing some, you know, of course, depending on the the jurisdiction, but, uh, you know, I mean, we're hearing stories and seeing data from all over the place. Joan Meyer just came out with a recent study that kind of, um, um, you know, really pointed out how this seems to be um, uh, not just isolated little pockets, but family courts throughout the country, uh, tend to be doing some really 
awful things um, when a woman tries to leave uh, a domestic violence situation when it comes to the family court stuff and, and child custody and everything. So it's not only risky from a, a personal safety standpoint, it can be risky from uh, the standpoint of protecting your children, of uh, of all sorts of things. Um, so, you know, it, it, and I just kind of throw that out there because it, it is so easy for us to, to uh, judge, to stand back and judge uh, these decisions and, you know, how long it takes. What are you planning to do next, Doctor? What, well, are, we, I'm we, this kind of well obviously, we're going to continue this. So we have we have a couple of studies right now that we need to analyze results and and complete. We've just submitted a new grant to try to enroll couples, uh, and because we want to try to get inside the mind of the abusive spouse here and to see what are what's going through his mind uh, on a daily basis and see if we can, uh, what things trigger his violent behavior. Right now we've, re- we've relied predominantly on the woman's, her impressions of what's going on. Um, but we're trying to predict his behavior through her impressions, and we want to try to actually get into his mind and see what's going on there. The other thing is we want to start looking at how the children in the household affect the decision-making process and the violence itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there, that reminds me of the kind of classic study from the University of Washington. We're not using it very much anymore, and I, I have it on my shelf, but I'm not seeing it. Um, if you're familiar with the University of Washington study about, um, I, I think they compared abusers. They, they were among the first to identify that there's not just one type of abuser, and they, uh, I think they compared them to wolves and cobras or something. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? I'm not sure I recall the wolves and cobras. But. Well, I'm sure I probably got that incorrect. But um, you know, it, it's a classic University of Washington study, and, and that was one of the first ones that I read about abusers, and I thought, yeah, because you that was when we were using the, the whole cycle of violence thing, and I thought, but so many of these guys, there is no refractory period. There is no honeymoon phase. They, they right. just keep abusing and abusing, and, and that's when I pulled out that study. Uh, and read it, and it, it really, it, you know, I, I, I'm, to me, it, it said a lot. And I'm, I, um, over this last several years, and, and the study came out probably 12, 15 years ago. Um, but that's where the first one that I saw, where they actually started tracking the abusers, and they had them hooked up to all sorts of, you know, um, equipment to be able to judge their physiological reactions, et cetera, and they were surprised that, uh, they were, they, that there was a group of men in their study that did not fit with their expectations, and that's when they identified that, in fact, there were at least two groups of, of abusers, that you can't put them all in the same basket. This has been fascinating. Um, I would love to know more about your studies, and I would love to uh, keep informed with what you're doing. I would also wonder if down the road you're planning any kind of longitudinal studies on uh, the women who are leaving and their um, their, their trajectory, their, um, uh, whether they return, whether it's successful, whether you know what they encountered, et cetera. Are you planning any long-term follow-up studies? Uh, we've talked about it. We haven't done that. We, we actually, uh, other than the studies I've talked about, uh, we really want to develop a intervention for primary care offices 
So I think that's one area that we really want to try to focus on. Exactly, because, you know, who who does a woman go to, either the pediatrician or her family care doctor? I mean, any of us, all of us. (laughs) <laughs> go there. Right. So if if that's an area where we can really help out people, I remember uh, uh, a while back asking my family care physician, how come I'm not asked more uh, about domestic violence, you know, on, on my intake? And I, I loved my family doctor, but she said, well, if I ask you the questions and you answer positively, then I have to figure out what to do with that, and I don't have the time. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Oh. And unfortunately, the, the, in fact, I call it the seven frustrations that primary care doctors have with uh, partner violence, and that's that's one of the big ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, how much do we expect our family doctor to be able to do? That's why, uh, you know, in speaking with you, Johanna, I mean, I can tell just from your demeanor that you must be really good at, at working with women who are under this this kind of a stressful uh, situation. Uh, I appreciate both of you and the research that you're doing. I really want to keep apprised of it, and I thank you for being on the show to share a little bit about what you fi- you have your findings and uh, and what you're going to be doing in the future. So thank you very much. Thank you for this opportunity. Great. Um, now I always end the show with a quote. Well, I shouldn't say always. I didn't last week. I forgot. Um, but one of the quotes that I have is Lundy Bancroft. She's kind of a grand in the field of domestic violence. She wrote a book called Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men. And I think this quote says it all. The woman knows from living with the abusive man that there are no simple answers. And I think that kind of sums it up. There are no simple answers. I thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Dr. Katernal. And thank you so much, Johanna Bacco. Am I saying that right? Betcho. Betcho. Okay. okay. See, I'm massacring your names. You know, I I, I, I apologize for that. Uh, it, it's very early in the morning for me. I'm not an early morning person, so I'll use that as my excuse for butchering your names. Thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. Join us next week as we continue to explore some of these topics that affect us on our daily basis and affect those that we know on a daily basis. Thank you. <laughs> 